0: Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42 and 43. We'll be starting in the middle of chapter 42 for the sermon. I will read just the first verses of chapter 43 to begin. So do have your Bible open uh, to this portion. In your pew Bible, it's page 602 and 603. We are in the middle section of this prophecy of Isaiah that the scholars rightly label uh, the book of the servant. Um, Here we have a reminder that Israel was supposed to be called as God's servant and messenger to the nations. Uh, We learn of Israel's ongoing failure, that they are unable to be faithful. And so God is introducing what has always been his plan. It's not that it was plan B, uh, but as a way to manifest God's uh, superiority and supremeness in, in his sovereignty, the servant, the Messiah servant, would be the one who would fulfill the covenant that Israel or we could not fulfill. Uh, in our place, God's servant, the Lord's servant, uh, would save us. But he also refers to Israel as a servant, and it's in a negative way. So Israel finds itself in the midst of their spiritual failure under great duress, as is usually the case, and they are delivered from Assyria, but now he is preparing them for a time when Babylon would take them captive and scatter them and exile them, and it would be very difficult. Uh, the cultural tide would be turning against them. How would they hold up under that period of duress, oppression, persecution? So you could see, uh, this is a message to the church in the Old Testament that's timeless for the church of all ages. Um, Every era, the church somewhere finds itself under similar duress, and these words speak to the church in all eras. So we come to God's word now, looking for his guidance and his direction. Here as I read Isaiah 43 to start, starting at verse 1, I will read to verse 7. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Saba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, Everyone was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, it is, it is always humbling when we think of your love and commitment to us. It is humbling because we do not deserve your grace. We are unfaithful servants. By all rights, we deserve your wrath instead. However, because of your great mercy, You have reached to us by your grace through your Son, the great and perfect servant, and we are redeemed. We know whatever may come our way, whatever pressure may come upon us, we can rejoice in your salvation, and knowing your purpose in saving us can help guide us and direct us and lead us through whatever times we may face. Lord, we do rejoice in your salvation, and we truly want your name to be glorified. Show us what is true and what to do pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This message that we read uh, from Isaiah to the people of God uh, was given initially to a people who were waning in their influence. Um, The culture around them was caving in upon them. Um, They were coming up against opposition. Now, we know from the context, in this case, this opposition they were facing uh, was... Chiefly due to their lack of obedience to God over time, Um, their unfaithfulness led to their discipline from a God who loves them. But if you were just to look at the picture from afar, you would see uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God in this sense, in this context, now starting to become overwhelmed by the culture and the world around them. So God gives very important revelations so that they can hold up under it, so that they could renew their dependence upon God, the one they had been faithless towards, they could be renewed again in their belief and their trust in him. This would help them initially when he's giving the message. It would help in the future when Babylon actualized the things that are forecasted. And it would help every person of God called by his name anytime they would be faced with the reality of a pressing power upon them. We know this individually and we see it in the life of the church in history. Now, you think about the life of Israel, many times they came under the duress of an opposing nation, mostly because of their unfaithfulness. But think of other times in which it's occurred. In the first century, in the, into the third century, when you have uh, the Roman Empire, not the friend of God in any, by any means, enemies against God. And yet the church is given strength to bear up under it, despite uh, all the powers that came upon them. Then you see throughout church history, and even now on the earth, there are so many places where the church is struggling to maintain itself, to keep its identity, to not be wiped out. Even in our own day, this is difficult to imagine in some respects, but we're starting to see more and more of a press, even in our own country as Christians. If you claim a biblical faith, historic faith, there's more and more pressure upon us. I think we all feel it. What's interesting is these other cases, like in the Roman Empire or back in Israel's day when they're dealing against heathen nations. It's not like the roots of those nations were once godly and then they turned and then uh, persecuted the godly. But in our case, it's different. I mean, I think we all know this. I mean, our country has woven into its constitution even, its written statement about who we are and supposed to be, uh, this freedom for us who are quote-unquote religious, who have beliefs in God, um, to practice this. In fact, Uh, The first ten amendments to the Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. I mean, they're the, the big ones. And the first one says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I mean, right at the beginning, there was an understanding there needed to be a safeguard for people to practice their faith. President George Washington as he was leaving office in his farewell address says something you would never hear from a politician today. Of all the dispositions and habits, Washington said, which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, religion and morality, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Then John Adams just 2 years after Washington says, our constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. I mean, these are the the foundation pieces and now we find ourselves as Christians wondering about religious liberty is pressure going to come upon us? Will we be like the church in so many ages, including in Isaiah's day, where we start to feel a pressure that will not allow us to express things, at least not without a cost? I was reading a commentary on how the fabric of our country began. I've always been intrigued, and I know that there's, there's all sorts of stuff that can be propped up that maybe isn't true, uh, but I was reading a, a a good paper on this topic by Andrew Walker, who was writing for Witherspoon Institute. He notes Madison and Adams, founding fathers. They argue that religion is prior to the claims of the state. This is the mindset of those who started this country. It provides the grounding for democracy necessary for ordered liberty. And if religion is prior to the state, its importance looms larger than the state's reach. This understanding wasn't a secondary feature to America, It was arguably its distinguishing feature. Seen in this light, the Constitution didn't grant religious liberty. Rather, religious liberty helped grant a penundrum of other rights that are enshrined by our Constitution. I only lay this out not to go long into this, but we are in a unique situation. Unlike the Israelites who were in the midst of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, people who worshipped many gods and were uh, anti-monotheistic. They're anti the religion of Israel from the very beginning. Unlike them, and unlike the early church who was uh, born against the backdrop of the Roman Empire and their, their, um, their polytheism, all sorts of gods, against that backdrop, Um, church is formed. We, on the other hand, have had an incredible heritage given to us, and yet I don't think anyone doubts there is an erosion of religious liberty that's happening right before our eyes. I believe that this means we must take even more seriously these kinds of passages where you see over and over again God preparing his people for whatever may come. Now, I will also say, I can't speak prophetically like a prophet can, but putting two and two together— One of the issues for Israel as they became less faithful. God, in order to draw them to greater faithfulness, allowed for pressure to be put upon them so the truth of who they really were would be shown. So they would know they were really the church of God. He promises never to see them destroyed. He will be with them all the way. We see it in the passage. But he loves them so much he won't leave them in their lukewarmness. Maybe that's what's coming for the church. What we have in this message will help us then. The often expressed scriptural teaching about God's purpose in creating and redeeming us. It's something that gives us our identity. It reminds us why we are who we are. It, It beckons to us why we are the called out ones, the ecclesia of God. Why are we this? Well, if we know why he created and redeemed us, that will help us hold up under whatever pressure may come our way. And this is really the bedrock of what he is expressing to his people here And even now, the often expressed scriptural teaching about God's purpose in creating and redeeming his people serves again here as a comfort, and not just a comfort, a guidepost for our lives. Now, go back to chapter 42. We left off at verse 17 last week. We'll pick up at verse 18 to see the the backdrop for those wonderfully uh, encouraging verses I started with. At verse 18 down to verse 25, the end of that chapter, chapter 42, chapter 42, we see an obvious reason for the difficulty Israel was facing. I don't mean to say that every time the church faces duress, it is because God's disciplining for unfaithfulness. Certainly that's not the case in many places in the world. But we must confess that there is a probability that could be what we face today in our age. That's certainly what Israel faced in their time. The servant of the Lord that was celebrated in the first part of chapter 42 was Jesus, the Messiah who would come. The servant of the Lord in view here is the failed servant, Israel. Verse 18, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. He's speaking to his people, Jacob. That is a synonymous term for Israel or Judah. It's a summons to deaf and blind people he's talking to. They have to recognize their blinded state. Verse 19, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? You were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. But you're blind, you're deaf. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? Clearly he's talking about his people here. He's talking about those who he has called. Verse 20, talking of his people, he sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. He gave revelation to them. He revealed to them that which they could only know if God revealed it. They could not know God if he didn't do this, and he did it. Yet, he sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. He's speaking of his people. Verse 22, "...but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons." They have become a plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to save, restore. Now the pressure has come upon them. Now they're feeling the persecution. Now they have the heat upon them. And it's a terrible description of them. They're deaf. They're blind. They have seen God's revealed, but they don't pay attention to it or they look away or they don't observe it. And now they're under pressure. Now they're feeling it. Now it's difficult for them. God calls them obstinate, they're imprisoned. He says there are people being pillaged by those around them. This week, Ligonier Ministries put out the results of a survey they've been working on for some time in conjunction with LifeWay. Different traditions together to come up with a survey to really ascertain the spiritual health of primarily those who call themselves evangelicals. Now, to narrow it down, for you to answer in the survey... You couldn't just say, yes, I'm an evangelical. You had to say also, I attend church at least twice a month. Now, evangelical historically has usually meant a person who believes that the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word, therefore it's authoritative, and that Jesus is the only Savior from our sins by trust and faith in him. Very simple. The Bible is God's word. Jesus is the only Savior essentially. That's what it meant to be evangelical many years ago. So, these people who would say, Yes, I'm evangelical, of which I would include ourselves, the responses are staggering. For instance, when the question was posed, Does an individual need to contribute to their own salvation? 74% of the people said yes. When the question was asked, Is Jesus the first and greatest being created by God? Now, it's a trick question because Jesus isn't created, he's God. However, 71% of those who identify themselves as evangelical say yes. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, right? Well, 54% agree with that, that we're good by nature. God accepts the worship of all religions. I mean, all religions. Think of some of the religions. 48%. Now think of any religion outside of Christ. 48% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. The statement was made, my good deeds help earn my place in heaven. 39% of those who are evangelical believe this is true. God will always reward faith with material blessings, a particular question for American Christians, no doubt. 37% think this is true. Boy, tell that to the Christian in Sudan right now. A person obtains peace with God by first taking initiative to seek God, then God will respond with grace. I think this is one of the most telling. A heresy that has been condemned three times in the history of the church. Eighty-three percent of evangelicals say it's true. Ethical questions. Is sex outside of marriage sin? Forty-eight percent think it isn't. Is abortion a sin? Forty-eight percent think it is. How about only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their savior receive God's gift of eternal life. Now that was the basic question is to determine if you were evangelical. It used to be if you didn't agree with that then you're not evangelical. Well, 56% of the people agree with this, meaning 44 do not and they call themselves evangelical. Our problem church is not political. It's deeply spiritual. He sees many things, it's said of God's servant, the church. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Down to verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted, I'll say. Plundered and looted of their theological and doctrinal senses are we? There are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. How could the world know of Jehovah if his servant Israel was so deaf and so blind? We have an honest description of people trying to act in their own spiritual ability in how powerless they are. It fails. Uh, Israel here is an example of what happens when We try to walk in our own wisdom and power. They're an example of compromise and accommodation. They've compromised the exclusive message of Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and they have made peace with the gods of Molech and Baal. They have made accommodations that violated God's word in order to get along with the enemies of God. They ignored God's commands about who they were and what they were supposed to do, who they were supposed to be, and instead applied their own wisdom and reasoning. And you see what the result is. They are blind, and they are deaf, and they are in prison. Who among you, verse 23, will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? God is declaring the truth about their condition. He's saying, this is where you are, this is where you find yourself, this is the state you are in, and it's pathetic, it's bad, it's really bad. I'll be honest with you, though. I wonder if these survey questions were asked to Israel at this time. They would have scored better. Who did this? Who brought this discipline upon them? The people might wonder. Verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter in Israel, to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they, should, they would not walk, and in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the, might of, and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take heart. he bring all these ways of disciplining him, and they still weren't getting it. They still weren't responding. So now it would be really, to this point, the greatest of the disciplines they'd ever known. Israel had already been taken, the first ten tribes, gone, lost forever by identity. Now just Judah remains, and even they will be taken. Now God, because of his covenant promises, and because of the servant Messiah, he will keep them intact insofar as their identity is concerned. But they would be exiled, they would be brought to the brink of extinction as discipline, so they would wake up and see who the Holy One of Israel is. Often, often, the trouble that Christians face is a result of its unfaithfulness to God. The church grows weak and worldly, and God loves us so much that he brings a purging force upon us. When the church compromises God's word and tries to accommodate opposing beliefs, God brings pressure in order to purify. We see this with Israel, and we see it as an example of God's wayward people, but God's Loving discipline applied. And keep in mind what comes next is so important. God tells the truth about what's happening with his people. But then what we have in verse 1 of chapter 43 and all that follows is the beautiful message of God's grace to us as people again. He reminds us that yes, this is all true about where we find ourselves. But he reminds us that our identity can be found only in his sovereign love and choice for us. It's his identifying us with him that gives us renewal. It makes us lift our head up. I mean, our head's lifted up right now. We've been alarmed by the state of the church in the Old Testament, the state of the church today. So we're listening. We're paying attention. What do we do now? Well, verse verse 1 in chapter 43. Let's be renewed in what is true about who we are. Let us be reminded of our identity. Verse 1. But now, after all of this, but now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he's talking about his people, Israel, he who created you, he who formed you, O Israel, the God who called you, who identified you, who gave you distinction. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. Yes, it's bad. But fear not, look up and receive what it is that I say about you. You are mine. I created you and I redeemed you. You are mine. Now we have hope. Now we want to hear what the Savior says. I want you to see this as a definite parallel with the church today. Lest anybody think, wait a minute, this is Isaiah. He's talking to the the Israelites 2,700 years ago. What does it have to do with the church today? Everything. Uh, Remember, what the Old Testament is, is an unfolding of the the promises of God being completed in Christ. In every way that man fails, Christ succeeds uh, as our representative. So the servant Israel, the servant of God who failed as messengers, um, they are justified by the servant in their place. And when we are in that servant, then we receive the promises of God to him, to his people, and that's what we have before us. Way before the time of Isaiah, Moses, who was receiving the law from God, in Exodus 19, he looks forward to what Israel would become. And he wasn't thinking ethnic Israel on the whole. He was thinking of what the Israel of God would be, what this would be to the nations, the messenger um, represented by the messenger and it would, he's talking about the church, ultimately. This is what would happen. Listen to what he says in Exodus 19, right around the time of the Ten Commandments. Thus, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What does that have to do with the church, pastor? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, will, you shall be my treasure possession among all the peoples. Oh, well, they didn't do that. No, they didn't. But the servant did. The only faithful Israelite to ever live kept covenant. So God had to fulfill promise with Jesus. So how do we become the true Israel when we're in Jesus? Because Jesus kept covenant perfectly. God the Father kept covenant perfectly. And we receive the benefits of the covenant in Christ. And so he's forecasting what will come to pass. He says... You will be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel, God tells Moses in Exodus. So we come to the time of Isaiah, and this promise keeps being repeated. You are my people, you will represent me, You will show forth my glory. In a few chapters, we'll read in Isaiah 61, "You shall be called priests to the Lord, this forecast of what Israel would become. And then we come. To Peter. In 1 Peter, he says to the church now, made up of Gentiles and Jews alike, the true Israel of God is revealed. He says, but you, that's us two, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In Exodus 19, it says, you will be. In Peter, it says, you are. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the church fulfills what was forecasted, completes what was laid out in the old. And this is why these promises to God's people in Isaiah apply to us today. God will always preserve his people. He will save his people. He will keep his people. And the church, for this reason, will never fail, even when it looks like it's a mess. Amen, by the way. It may be assailed, it may be maligned, it may be battered, but it will remain. Countries will come and go, as will their leaders, but God's church will remain. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice the corporate promises made in these verses as we get a glimpse of God's promises, verse one again. But now, thus says the Lord: He who created you, O Jacob; He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name; you are mine. God's love for His church doesn't stop there with His choosing; it is practiced in His deeds, in His preservation. Look at verses two, down to ver- verse two, down to verse five is we see God's never-failing, covenantal, committed, promise-keeping care for us. Hard times have come for Christians over the centuries, and they will come again. But God's promises are always timeless and sure. Verse 2, "...when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Not if you might happen upon some waters." When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. This is a message to the church. Now, there are many individual promises to individual believers that are just like this. But make no mistake, he's talking to us, the church, now. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. There are many reasons that God will allow for or bring suffering into our life. Understand it's always measured. It's always careful. It's always limited. It never destroys us completely. It always has purpose in driving us to himself. Verse 3. Remembering from whom this comes. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. You've been looking at idols You've been looking at other stuff for your satisfaction, other stuff to protect you, other things, other people for your security. I love you. You are mine. I will preserve you. I will protect you. Who am I? He says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He says, I'm the only one you could trust, and all the other stuff you've been trusting is fake, it's empty, it's weak, They're delusions. God is our covenant God. He is committed to us. He is the Holy One as compared to all the false gods promoted by others. I don't know why we are in a time like we are in, but it pains me to see Christians desperate, looking for help where it cannot be found, when we have the Holy One of Israel as our God, your God. That's where our help can be found. That's what we need. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And I'll do whatever it takes to show that and to move things so that it's obvious. And that's what he's saying in the rest of the passage. I give Egypt as your ransom. I mean, I will move Egypt around to make sure you know you're my special ones. Cush and Saba, in exchange for you, I'll trade them for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Now, wait a minute. Aren't we the ones who are deaf and blind? Aren't we the ones who are such failures? Yes! yet God commits to love us. Know our identity, church. I mean, as soon as we start to understand who we are, we will not worry about whatever is pressing upon us. The God of Israel, the only true and living God, the Lord our God, the Holy One of Israel is our Savior, and he's the one who promises to protect us because we are precious, verse 4 says in his eyes, honored, and he loves us. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, people of God, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. What a list of identifying benefits and features we have as the people of God. He is our God. He is our Savior. He, we are precious to him. He honors us. He loves us. He's with us. He preserves us. The church will never fail in this light. It never will. The first 300 years of the church's uh, existence post-resurrection, the church has always existed as God has called as redeemed to himself, but in the sense that we usually think of it since Jesus' ascension. Those first 300 years were some of the worst years the church ever saw as far as persecution goes. Yet its explosiveness, how much it grew in that time period, just attests to how God is not thwarted by people trying to stop the church. They can't stop the church. They won't stop the church. I was reading a wonderful paper on this topic by George Grant. Listen to what he says. He's trying to show how much persecution there is, but then how God is using it, even today in our era. According to ministries such as Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs, more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last century than all other ages combined. And he he denotes, or he refers to all the different lethal assaults like uh, Lenin in, in the former Soviet Union, Stalin, of course Hitler, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, Idi Amin, all these different despots that have done their best to try to, to crush the church underneath them. Uh, now in this, this new generation of Islamic jihadism that you see all over, trying to crush the churches in various places. Grant then noticed, notes he does a bit of a survey. I don't know if he knows these people personally or did the research to find it but he goes to pastors, not pastors like me in Johnson County, who are only forecasting what may come, to pastors who are living up under it and listen to what they say about their times of persecution. A merciful service in the face of suffering is often, quote, from a Romanian pastor, often that's the glue that holds together the varied fragments of the confessing church. A Russian evangelist said strong bonds of unity, compassion, and tender heartedness in the church come up spring forward in times of persecution. A pastor who is Croatian and underwent much persecution over the last several years, but even 20 years ago, to the, almost to the point of death, wrote, In the face of tyranny, oppression, and humiliation, the church has no option but to be the church. A Bosnian Christian leader said, Disguised as evil, persecution comes to us as an ultimate manifestation of God's good providence. Imagine saying that. Another persecuted pastor says because it provokes us toward a newfound dependence upon his grace, upon his word, upon his people. It is in that sense a paradoxical blessing, perhaps even more than profound prosperity would be. What a beautiful picture of the church's invincibility with God building it. Samuel Stone wrote, the church is one foundation, and I still uh, am moved every time I read the second verse. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend... To guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Look with me now again at the text, starting in verse 6 now, where we see kind of a, a summarizing point. Now, there will be a repeated theme that we will find as we study together through to chapter 55, as a matter of fact, the whole section called the Book of the Servant. A repeating theme of, of deliverance and redemption and it kind of grows in its scope and its picture, and Jesus comes more and more into focus. But for now, look at this kind of summarizing statement that gives us our place in the universe. And I know that's a big statement. Boy, I didn't come here knowing that I'd find out my place in the universe. Guess what? You're going to find it out. Because God tells us what it is. He's going to call people to himself. He's going to call people to himself from all corners of the globe. That's what it says in verse 5 and verse 6. Fear not. I am with you. Talking to the church... I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. God will gather his chosen people from the four corners of the earth, and that's what he's doing until he comes again. King Jesus reigns from the right hand of the Father, and King Jesus will return, and he will have all of his people who will meet him at that time. The people of God uh, will find full joy when that moment arrives, but gain some joy knowing now that no matter what the world does, the church keeps on growing and people keep being saved and redeemed and delivered and called. And it says in verse 7, kind of the purpose for it all, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I'm leaving off here because I want us to conclude with that thought. What is our identity? We are created for God's glory, and we are redeemed for his glory. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I love when the scripture repeats themes like this, and this is a repetitive theme throughout the Bible. It's such a helpful theme. I'm so self-focused, and I what is my purpose? I mean, what have I accomplished? What have I, what have I, think to myself, and maybe you ask yourself the same question. Maybe you're helping a, a, a child who's navigating towards going to college, and you're trying to figure out, what should they do? Well, what message are we giving them? The message should be, you are created for God's glory, and you redeem for his glory. So whatever it is he's called you to do, however he's wired you, know that's what you're called to do. I've had the, the privilege of spending weeks preaching through Ephesians 1 and 2 for our high schoolers, middle schoolers and high schoolers at HCA just walking through the text with them. And I'm amazed as I do these dual studies with Isaiah and then over to Ephesians. The same theme. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Blessed blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is how we receive, we've been redeemed by Jesus, by God through Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? Why did he do this? to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ultimately, our place in the universe is to bring glory to God. That's where we'll find our greatest satisfaction. Later in Ephesians 1, there are multiple places in Ephesians we find this, but here again, very vividly, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, you're redeemed, you're delivered, who is the guarantee of, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. Back to verse 7 in Isaiah 43. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's purpose in creating and redeeming his people, it serves here again as a comfort and a guidepost for our lives. Church, whatever may come, whatever may happen, Let's not lose sight of what our purpose is, what our identity is, because knowing our purpose and being assured of God's presence and his power serves as a source of great comfort and courage no matter what comes to pass, and God's glory will go forth no matter what. Let us bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are thankful for your abiding presence and sustaining grace. We can see that you have loved us with great love. You declare your love for your people numerous times in Scripture. We see it here again in Isaiah. And we see it fulfilled when you send Jesus, the great lover of our soul. Lord, give us faithfulness in response to your great grace shown to us. Give us faithfulness, especially in times that can be perilous. Grant us courage to live according to your word. Move us to be faithful evangelists in a time so needy for good news. Assure us of the mission that you have called us to as your people, and make us to always know that you never fail us or will never forsake us, and that your church will never fail, because Jesus, he is building it. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's respond by singing uh, 508. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2.